Hello, everybody. Welcome to Monday Night Live. My name is Derek Gardner. I'm delighted to have a friend of ours on Monday Night Live, Tim Durkin, known as Texas Tim Durkin, from uh, Glenbury, near Dallas in Texas. Tim, welcome back. It's great to see you there, dressed up smartly like me. What can we say, you know, us Americans and Brits uh, uh, making a lot of money? So uh, your book, I've got two copies of it here. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, a blue one and a red one. I don't know which was the first one, but uh, moving from promise to performance. So first of all, I'd like to talk to you about one or two things in the book that took me uh, not by surprise, but they resonated with me. The first one is what's your cattle guards? What does that mean? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back, Derek. It's always a pleasure to be on your chat show, and I'm very excited to be here. Um, I feel very, very much like I am among friends. Um, Cattle Guards was something that I uh, I discovered shortly after I moved to Texas um, a long time ago, probably 50 years ago. And um, as I visited my friends that had ranches or I went hunting, um, it was my job because I wasn't driving to jump out and open the gates that are closed to keep the cattle in. And then the truck would go through and then I'd go but jump back out and close the gate. Now, if you're driving and you're trying to get to the back pasture, you may do this six or seven times. And it's 100 degrees or 40 plus degrees uh, centigrade out there and you know you're pretty worn out by the time you get out to where the cattle are that you have to feed or count or, or take care of well some enterprising farmers came up with an idea that they dug a trench and they put six inch diameter pipes in a row maybe 10 maybe a dozen of them and they didn't need a gate then because a cow knows instinctively that it cannot walk across a a series of pipes because of the hooves, they would slip and fall and they would be thus on their way to hamburger heaven earlier than anticipated. But while that kept the cows in, it tore up the trucks and because the ranch hands would go hit those things and it's very, very bumpy. So some enterprising person came up with the idea that if they brought up the pipe, they covered up the hole, covered it with asphalt or tar or concrete. And then if they just painted 10 or 12 white stripes, six inches in diameter, the cows wouldn't know the difference. And they don't. It doesn't tear up the trucks and the cows don't cross it, but it's just paint. And the, the whole idea is we sometimes erect painted cattle guards in our lives, where we choose not to do something because we don't think we're going to be able to do that. The, the limitations we place on ourselves before we even try to break out into something new um, can be devastating. So that's the idea behind painted cattle guards. And I'm, I'll remember one time being in Utah when we were turning onto a highway, the entrance ramp onto the to what you would call the M, um, motorway, it, it, all of a sudden, I noticed my friend driving, I noticed that there was painted cattle guards on the entrance to the freeway. And I said, holy cow, I can't believe that you have painted cattle guards on the highways out here in Utah. He said, what are you talking about? I said, those lines of paint, don't you notice them? He said, yeah. I said, you know what they're for? He said, 
yeah, there's some kind of paint test or something. I said, no, they're cattle guard. They keep the cows off the highway. And he said, Tim, I've lived here for 25 years and I have never once seen a cattle, uh, seen a cow on the highway. Wow. And as soon as he said those words, <laughs> he and I both started laughing. Obviously they worked. <laughs> So anyway, that's the idea behind cattle guards is putting limitations on you or someone else, because it's never get out a bucket of paint and start painting cattle guards around your friends or your relatives, loved ones when they want to do something, because there are people walking around with buckets of paint that'll that'll profess your limitations. That is a great metaphor, Tim. I love it. And uh in fact, uh, everybody on here is here because we are really positive people and we don't let people put limiting beliefs on us. But sometimes when our guard's down or when the cattle guard's down, um, we do pick up their toxic uh, their toxic comments, which are really yeah. unhelpful because they work on the unconscious mind. As, uh, as Well, Derek, if I may recall back when I talked about my friend Jim, who the teacher called Jim, who said, Jim, you're too stupid to get long division. Okay, and it turns out he is a mathematical genius, but nonetheless, that was the turn, the biggest turn in his life. Yeah, it's, that was a pain in Caligard. Absolute disgrace that people do things like that, and they need to understand more about positive thinking and the language we use. And we're going to do some more of that uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, next question: Who's the keeper of the flame? Ah, oh, the keeper of the flame is a hero. Back in the day, um, there would be large caravans of people, especially in Europe, uh, large caravans of people moving. Sometimes whole villages would move from one spot to the next, but large bands of people would move and they'd walk during the day, or if they were really important, they would ride in coaches. The word coach means to carry forward. And it was generally only important people who were coached. Um, interesting metaphor there. But uh, the rest of us were ped pedestrians, a foot, uh, ped pedis, Latin for foot. Uh, but anyway, they were walk, they would travel. And at the end of the day, they would be tired, hungry, and cold. But there was always some or one person in the group whose whole job it was, was to carry burning embers, and to keep those burning embers burning so that as soon as they stopped to encamp, that person would start to build the fire, the fire for warmth, the fire for food, the fire for protection uh, if there were wild animals about. Well, the keeper of the flame turned out to be a very important job. And I believe that we need to carry the fire. Everybody on this call, I know almost everybody to some extent or the other, we keep coming back because we're, I believe, keepers of the flame. But there are also dousers, D-O-U-S-E-R-S. -E there are people who will blow out your flame, or there are people that would knock the embers out of your hand just for the sake of doing it. And so I believe that, that the keeper of the flame is an important job now we have to carry the carry the fire um, as it was then. And, and so I always look for keepers of the flame. Um, and I always try to be one, the keeper of the flame of positivity. You know, the other part I mentioned in the book is the, the candle is such a great metaphor because if you're holding a candle, you can light somebody else's candle 
your candle is not in any way diminished, but the light is doubled. And we can continue that. And, and so I think the candle and the keeper of the flame, very strong metaphors. It is. And um, people that read my newsletter this morning will have said, seen I used one of your other metaphors from the book, actually, in the title. Um, you can count the number of pips in a tomato, but, uh, seeds in a tomato, but you can't count the uh, number of tomatoes in a seed. Where did you get that one from? I loved it. Well, I wish I could tell you accurately who that is. That is not mine. I heard it, I think, on a tape, and I suspect it might have been Jim Rohn or maybe Brian Tracy. I, I, I literally cannot tell you, but I know if you Googled it, you'd probably find half a dozen people that claim it. It was probably Abraham Lincoln said it on the internet. But um, the, the, uh, that's a really strong idea uh, because if you're a speaker, you know that you've had people come up to you after a session and say, that really was great. That changed my life. That did this or that did that. Um, it's like Robert Fripp, Patricia's brother, phenomenal guy when he talks about acts of quality, ungovernable by measure. You just do something nice. Um, it, it, I'll give you an example because I, I follow Robert's advice. The other day I was at my market and I wanted to test a, a, a brand of turkey that I hadn't had before, a taste of turkey. I wanted to know if I'd like it. So I went up to the young lady that was working there and I said, would you mind uh, if I could get a taste of this? Now, it was instantly apparent to me that this young girl wasn't enjoying her job, wasn't enjoying where she was, wasn't very happy, um, and and but it was a job. And maybe she had other things going on in her life. I didn't know then. But she said, she said nothing. And she went and she said, which one? And I said, I'd like to try the Cajun spiced turkey to see if I like it. And so she unwrapped it, cut me a slice. I tasted it. I liked it. And I said, I'll take some of that. She cut it up. She put it away and she handed it to me. And I looked at her and I said, can I tell you something? And she said, yeah. And I said, whoever designed those glasses that you're wearing had you in mind. They absolutely look awesome. And she said, oh my gosh, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, they're new. And I said, well, they look great. And I walked away. I hadn't gotten 20 yards, 20 meters away. When I felt somebody tug at my arm, I turned around and it was her. And she said, sir, you have no idea what you just did for me. With all the things going on in my life, that was the best thing that happened to me. And the tears were streaming down. Now, I'm not talking about Tim Durkin here. I'm talking about a simple act of quality. Because uh, I, I, I had, I, that's a tomato seed, right? No telling what the rest of the day was. No telling how she's going to pay that compliment forward. I'm, I, you just can't count the number of tomatoes in one seed that you planted. And I'm a planter. That's it. That's great I'm to plant him. Yeah, there's a lot to be taken away from that. Well, that's yeah. Robert Fritz act of quality or act of moral beauty. Random acts of kindness. That's, uh, I must have taken that back from uh, an American speaking conference as well. That's what I wrote down while you were saying that. 
Third question from your book. What's the worst word in the world? <laughs> well, the worst word in the world was taught to me by a very successful football coach, national champion, um, American football, collegiate champion, Lou Holtz. I happen to be sitting at a table with him and two other successful coaches in Olympic sports, swimming and, and um, tennis. And, you know, I, I just, I couldn't offer anything to the conversation, except occasionally I'd stand up and say, hey, anybody want a beer? Yeah, I'll take one. Okay. Um, but that was my role. I, I mean, I couldn't add anything to conversation. I've never been at that level player wise or coaching wise. But Lou said something. He said, you know, I think the key to getting the best performance out of your people is you never get shooty with them. And everybody said, what you say, Lou? He said, don't ever get shooty with them. And I thought he said another word, and you might think I said another word, but he said, you never tell a kid what they should have done because as destructive as can be. He said, here's why. Number one, it's, it's a testament. It's a statement of failure. You should have and didn't. Ergo, you failed. It's also in the past tense, which means number three, they can't do anything about it. Mm. And so I said, well, Lou, what should you say? He said, next time. He said, we always say next time, never what I should have done, never what you should have done. He said, you don't say should have with kids because first of all, you got a player that's eager to play. And then all they hear from you is they should have done this. And you should have done that. Guess what? They don't want to play football, soccer anymore. They don't want to play volleyball or basketball because why the ride home is all about what you should have done. You should have passed it over to little Mary. She's standing in front of an open goal doing deep nasal probes and you're hogging the, the football. It doesn't happen. He said, but the worst person that you should never get shitty with is yourself. He said, the self-talk that we give ourselves, we would slap somebody into next week if they dare say it to us. But ourselves, oh yeah, I should have done this, I should have done that, I never should have done this. And you know, I can go into a whole thing, but it's uh it's a very dangerous word. It, interestingly enough, and, and correct me if I'm wrong or, or examine this, I never hear elite performers say they should have done that. Your man Pep, I bet he never says we should have done this. He'll say next time we'll do this. Why does next time work? Future focused, controllable, non-judgmental. The opposite of what we should have done. So I always uh, I, I have a an ear now for should have. And I have seen some players say, well, I should have done this, I should have done that. And I sit up straight. And the next thing you know, they're out of the league. They're out of a job. Um, and I never I one person in particular, famous football coach, Jimmy Johnson, he never said that. It was always next time, next time, next time. And then one time there was an ignominious defeat that the Cowboys suffered. And uh, he said, we should have done this. We should have done that. And I sat up straight and I said, I can't believe Jimmy Johnson said that. The next week he retired from coaching. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a disastrous word. Fantastic. Now, um, in your book, you talk about run it up the flagpole, which is quite, um, quite interesting for me, because as you know, I worked in banking for over 30 years. And this weekend, Silicon Valley Bank went uh, belly up. 
and um, it's been taken over in the UK. The UK arms been taken over by HSBC. I wonder what government guarantees they gave HSBC. I'd have been in there negotiating on their behalf. I'm very interested in that. But we used to say in the bank when we didn't want to agree something, um, let we'll just run it up the flagpole in me, meeting, meaning going to HQ or whatever. Didn't matter whether we're running up the flagpole or not and see what comes out. Your meaning of that was slightly different in your book. Yes, well, um, and Carl can correct me with or expand. He's very welcome to do it. But when we say let's run it up the flagpole and see if anybody salutes, we mean let's try it. Let's let's just propose this, okay? And say, well, what if we did give people all their money back, or what if we did give the uh, we did offer to do this? It's it's a test. Carl, do you agree? That's exactly what it is. Yes. Yep. So it's a little bit different um, than than your meaning, Derek. Yeah, it's interesting how these um, how these different metaphors or sayings uh, cross the Atlantic and get uh, tied up in uh, in different countries. Uh, I'm fascinated by the uh, mm -hmm. by the whole thing. Um, another phrase of yours in the book I liked him was the skin is just the envelope; it's the message inside that counts. Yeah, I. Uh... I feel real strongly about this. Um, as you know from my story, in my family, it was, you can't judge a book by its cover. Um, that is not my quote. I don't know whose quote that is, but um, it's, uh, our, you know, our skin is the envelope. The message is what's inside. And uh, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, you know? I mean, when we, we are obsessed with skin and ethnicity and and it's 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 a useless it, it, you, you we shouldn't be i'm sorry i'm stuttering if, no. if um you know i i'd uh I, my tongue just flipped over my eye tooth and i couldn't see what i was saying um yeah it is it's just a case of uh don't judge a book by its cover yeah mm -hmm. um the, because there's there's often gold inside gold and and if we haven't seen that by now, I don't know what it's going to take. I'm worried <laughs> if it's going to take well, more than that. <laughs> next time I interview Damien Lewis, and he has agreed to uh, come on the show in the uh, in May. I think it was May anyway. We can ask him about his book covers because uh, the uh, the uh, inside Damien's books they're fantastic, but they have different covers for America and different covers for the UK, which. Uh, and different titles, which yeah. amaze me. So uh, people do judge books by their cover, don't they? Because that's what sells them, I guess. But uh, well, yeah. I guess if if you, if you remember that great author you had a couple of weeks ago, her book is um, the same in the U.S. and it doesn't resonate with a, a mm. lot. It won't resonate with a lot of people, despite the fact it's a really good book. Joanna Gwaldin. I couldn't say her name at the time and I can't say it now. Now, let's get on to um, Ask a Yank. I didn't put that in my newsletter. I wasn't sure everyone would understand Ask a Yank, but uh, I invited people to send in any questions, however difficult they were. Um, but the first question I've got for you is what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and why wasn't it being monitored properly? Do you know much about that? Oh, uh, no, the, the direct answer is because right now there's a lot of blaming going on. Uh, they're blaming Trump because he lightened uh, the regulations. Well, the regulations were choking banking, apparently. Um, so it's, it's a lot of finger pointing. It's a lot of this um, because 
it, it makes the government look real bad because mm. they did allow that situation to occur, um, whether you, whoever's fault it is. But um, there's a lot of money at stake and there's people with millions of dollars and they're only guaranteed to 250,000. But I think yesterday, mm -hmm. in order to stop a run on the banking system, they came out with this promise to make everybody whole. Um, that's gonna be very expensive. Yeah, um, and it's, it, it will put a chill on the development of Silicon Valley because that was an entrepreneur's dream. I'd love to know the pitch freak, Antonio White's view on that because he's very connected to um, funding of startups in Silicon Valley. We'll have to get him back on. And um, so the second question is, Tim, um, why do you Yanks tip so highly? Um, where in, in England or in- Well, in no, I mean, you- um, 10% is the norm here, maybe 12.5% if you're uh, being really generous. Uh, giving mm -hmm. cash to the uh, server is a good idea because often they don't get it uh, if it's put on the bill. But uh, yeah. you guys seem to give 20% or 25%. Why is that? Yes, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's becoming a big thing now. A tip, the word tip, tips, is, is to ensure prompt service. Okay, that's it's an acronym actually to ensure prompt service. So when you got prompt service and you didn't have, or when you received prompt service and you didn't have to wait long, then they would customarily give ten and then fifteen percent. Then all of a sudden, in New York, San Francisco, the, in the major cities, the month it went up to twenty percent, and it's pretty much universally around the U.S. twenty percent now, despite the service. Um, if you get bad service or slow service in a restaurant, it's almost never the server's fault. It's a problem in the kitchen, low staff, or you, you, you know, we have a lot of problems uh, staffing restaurants now because people don't want to work in restaurants. The other reason is that all of us know somebody uh, or ourselves that worked in the restaurant industry. And we know we got $2 an hour and we're expected to survive on tips, um, which is criminal, right? I, I mean, but that, that's been the way until last year or two where they're now giving 15% uh, minimum wage, excuse me, $15 per hour minimum wage. So um, yeah, it used to be to compensate the servers like that was our job, not the restaurant's job. Um, but that's uh, that's how it came to be. And I have gotten pushback. Um, I remember I got pushback in Ireland in 1994 when I did tip 20%. And there were two bartenders at Temple Bar. And one of the bartenders barked at me. Um, and the other one that I gave it to didn't say anything. But the other one said, why are you Americans such heavy tippers? You're just showing off. Mm. I thought it was I thought it was normal. Mm. Um, it's very rude of him to say that, but um, um, well, he might have been mad that he didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. Okay. Third question is why you um, why have you got these fire pits? You're uh, stoking global warming with everything you do. Yeah. Well, we we actually didn't know that. Um, there hasn't been any movement against fire pits, um, and it, keep in mind living in Texas. 
where if you sit outside, it's usually 40, you know, even into the evening. So the fire pit doesn't typically get a big workout. Now on the shoulder season, the spring and the fall, that might happen. Um, but once again, there is this resistance in the U.S. that when the government mandates something, especially in Texas, it's almost mythical in Texas, but whenever the government mandates something, the federal government mandates something, you can be sure that there will be pushback. So, um, yeah, it's a, uh, we, we didn't know the impact. What What is under assault now, uh, do you all have leaf blowers that when the, the lawn care people well the gasoline what do you mean the lawn blowers. care people you you're talking to my lawn care people at the moment <laughs> yeah well as am i but uh the thing that they're really pushing now and carl can speak to this especially in california are the gasoline powered lawnmower not only the noise but the pollution is more than dozens of automobiles and and uh, motor vehicles uh, for just a half hour use. So um, that's that's having a big impact on the environment. Yeah, uh, so but but I... the fire pit is all about the the camaraderie. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a great place to talk and have a pint or two or four. Well, we're, we're, uh, yeah, we all like that. So we might, we may as well talk about um, um, Texas and guns before we close this part of the uh, the session um you like to you're you're really a, a country on your own in texas aren't you you don't, you don't obey any rules of of america and washington do you yeah it's uh it's it's it has a mentality since the beginning of being different and it was in fact a different country but um it's the only state that came in by treaty rather than came in by um you know uh acquisition if you will um, and part of the terms of the treaty is that the capital is higher than the U.S. capital, stands taller, and the Texas flag is the only state flag that can fly at the same height as the American flag. Now, I happen to fly the Texas flag underneath the American flag, but um, I don't have to. Uh, it just requires two flagpoles, and I don't want to do that. Um, but it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's mythical. Uh, it goes they go counter to the U.S. and it's something you pick up on right away now there's a lot of migration from California as a matter of fact more than half the homes on my street and another one is going to be moved into shortly are native Californians that have moved here um, and in Austin more Californians it's very much California. Wow. Well, and that's that's another question. Why do people move around quite so far in the U.S. and, and away from their friends and, and family, I guess? Well, interestingly enough, my view is that it's the job that took us. I mean, when I worked for Xerox Corporation, I moved 16 times in 11 years. Wow. OK. And and then when I got to Dallas, I didn't want to move anymore. And I told them that and they immediately fired me. Um, that's true. And uh, so it's the job that takes us away. But interesting, most of the people that I know that are moving are moving back to be closer to friends, either they're the seniors moving closer to grandchildren, or the people, yeah, and that's mostly it. But sometimes there, there's the younger people that are moving to be closer to their parents as they age or become more invalid. 
so it, yeah it's it's a I never thought it was unusual um to to move around a lot I was expected to but uh, then again my parents generation did not move much they stayed in the same house if they could mm. uh, for as long as they could okay yeah. final question in this series unless anybody else has got any questions to go in the chat box is guns i mean we are horrified here that uh, young people crazy people can walk around with uh, ak-47s and walk into schools and shoot people we just don't get it in europe um uh, I know you can't explain it, and I know you've got some good arguments for it, Tim. You've got a minute to prepare your case for Texas gun law. I could never prepare a case for the in, uh, the, the slaughter of innocents. Uh, it's, it's the saddest thing. It's mind-boggling. Um, and, you know, there's no excuse for it. The loss of one life, innocent life, child or adult, uh, is... The, is the saddest. Now, the case goes back to, it's a very American idea of gun ownership. Because if you look at in the 16 and 1700s, uh, the guns were more popular and more, more homes had a gun than had a Bible. More homes had a gun than had a chair or a chamber pot. It was just something that was absolutely necessary to find food or to protect yourself from hostile people. So the whole idea of having a gun goes way, way back. And any assault on that, like what happened September 1st, 1774, when your man, Major Gage, or excuse me, General, General Gage, um, took, the, took control of the, the, the gunpowder houses, um, it, that was a, a tantamount to seizing guns. Well, that that started the big conflagration that is the the war. Um, it, it's just it's just a really big thing. Now Texas has more guns because of its vast rural spaces where you you need them. Okay, um, but the urban the whole idea about having that many in urban life. The other thing and I'll run over the minute here, is there should be something called red flag laws, which I support, which is if a person is being deemed a mental case or shouldn't have a gun, that you can take it away. But the gun people are scared of that being, are afraid of that being abused. It's, uh, it's called capitulation. Well, they'll start with that. Or I could say to, you know, my friend Carl, I heard him. He was saying that, you know, he's so fed up with things and I know he's got a gun. I think he's a real danger. Well, LAPD can come in and swoop up on my word, his guns, which he's the sanest guy you're ever going to find out. I just got a beef with him. Okay, so there's there's abuse of the red flag laws. But, you know, it's tragic. The numbers, however, are very different. There's almost 50,000 death, gun deaths in um, uh, the US. 26,000 of them are suicides by gun. 21,000 are homicides by gun. Of the infamous assault rifle, less than three, approximately 400 deaths are by assault rifles. Okay, less than 400, 10 times more deaths are caused by clubs or knives 
Okay, so so the, the 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 numbers are being skewed. And by the way, all those statistics are from the Center of Disease Control, not known to be pro-gun by any stretch of the imagination. The other thing I will say is that according to the NRA, I'm suspicious of that. I used to be a lifetime member. I'm resigned. Uh, according to the NRA, uh, guns have stopped two million crimes. Mm -hmm. Okay, Tim, yeah. I think. Um... I think you put up a good case for the defense there. Uh, perhaps we'll debate that with our American friends uh, later on. But uh, can I thank you for your time? Can I thank you for being so sporting with some of my questions, which uh, were a bit direct and a bit deep? Um, and can I ask everybody, uh, all the members of Monday Night Live, to give you the usual vote of thanks your terrific talk. Well, and, um, thank, thank you. It was, a, it was a pleasure. I didn't find the uh, questions uh, difficult at all. I mean, I thought you're, you're such a respectful guy. You're an epic human being, Derek Arden. Well, in that, well, next time you come on, I'll make them a bit more difficult in that case. If you want a challenge, we can, uh, we can always yeah. have a go at that. So, well, here's, here's the thing that I love is me and my friend Carl are on opposite ends of some of the beliefs, but we're very good friends. And I cherish that. Um, and I think everybody should really try to be that. Find people who disagree with you or whose opinions you don't agree with, but can still respect the individual. I, I just, I think it, it, I treasure that kind of a, a friendship. So anyway. Tim, I'm going to make the last point. I think it was you that told me uh, how to be a uh, uh, how to be how to disagree without being disagreeable isn't that mm -hmm. the real trick of it all yeah. tim durkin tim durkin thank you for joining us i hope you'll join us on monday night live again very shortly uh, thank you very much indeed thank you